Morning, church family. All of you in one service, praise the Lord. Mark chapter 2 is where we'll be this morning. Uh, Mark chapter 2, verse 18 through 22 will be on the screen. If you do not have a copy of God's Word and you want one in your hand, just slip up your hand, and one of our church members will be glad to, to bring you one. We've got extra copies of God's Word in the back. Mark chapter 2, verse 18 through 22. <clears throat> we have been journeying through the gospel of Mark um, for a couple months now, and we turn to this morning the third of five controversy passages in the gospel of Mark that Mark strings together, one right after another. And by controversy, I mean moments where you're starting to see opposition against Jesus rise. Tension between Jesus and the religious elite of the day, the Pharisees, is rising, and it's primarily around who Jesus claims to be. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, we spoke about the theme of the gospel of Mark. This, this book is written with Jesus Christ as the main character. Every paragraph of this gospel has Jesus as the main character, except for two that speak about John the Baptist. In Mark chapter 1, verse 1, it gives us the theme right out of the bat. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of of God. This book is about a man named Jesus who was the Christ, the divine Son of God. At the baptism of Jesus, we saw God the Father himself tear open the heavens and declare with his own voice, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. In a teaching moment in a synagogue in Capernaum, we see demons trembling before this Jesus, running to Jesus, falling on their faces and declaring, you are the Holy Son of God. But beginning in chapter 2, we begin to see Jesus speak about his own identity. In Mark chapter 2, verse 5, Jesus begins to make shocking statements that reveal who he is and what his ministry is all about. In Mark chapter 2, you might think that the most amazing moment of Mark chapter 2 is where Jesus causes the paralytic man to rise and to walk for the first time using his legs. But even the structure of that passage, we saw that the greater miracle, the more shocking thing of the passage was that Jesus would look at that man and declare, Son, your sins are forgiven. That created outrage because what Jesus was doing in that moment was claiming the authority to do something that only God can do. That is to forgive sins that have been done against a holy and righteous God. In Mark chapter 2, verse 17, the story continued. And this time the controversy is Jesus' uh, friend group. 
Jesus is attending a get-together full of tax collectors and sinners after having called them to follow him. And he's receiving criticism for having table fellowship with the worst of sinners. If you really are this sort of godly person, this righteous person, perhaps the Messiah, how could you have table fellowship with the worst of sinners in the land? And Jesus responds in Mark chapter 2, verse 17, Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus says, it's me who calls, and I'm the physician for sick people, for sinful people. The the amazing thing about Jesus thus far is that when he touches unclean people, they don't make him unclean, he makes them clean. The truth claims about himself and his ministry that Jesus is making are more spectacular than even the miracles that authenticate them. And as Jesus begins to declare who he is and begins to carry out his ministry, opposition rises. So we turn to yet another moment where Jesus speaks about his ministry and identity. Verse 18 through 22. I'm going to read verses 18 through 22, and then we're going to pause and just pray for God to grant us understanding of this text. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to them, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and the worst tear is made. No one puts new wine into an old wine skins. If, if he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wine skins. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we, we come to you asking that you would work the miracle of speaking with clarity and the miracle of hearing and understanding and applying true things from your word. And we pray, God, that you would shape our our desires, shape our hungers and our thirsts for the right things this morning. And use this text to do it, we pray. We pray by your grace and for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 18. Let's read it again. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Verse 18 reads as sort of a challenge to Jesus. Sort of a challenge as to what seems to be a lack of religious devotion among Jesus and his followers. John the Baptist and his disciples are giving themselves to fasting, the spiritual discipline of fasting. The Pharisees are fasting, but Jesus, you and your disciples, you're just feasting. You're throwing tax collector parties. 
and you're kicking it at the table and eating and enjoying yourself. You're, you're not giving yourselves to, to the strictest of religious devotions that other people are. And so, Jesus, are you really the real deal if you're not doing this as they are doing this? Jesus and his disciples are not fasting, and that seems to be a problem to the people who are now confronting Jesus. So we really need, we really need some background to grasp the accusation, because uh, the accusation doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us unless we have the background. And so I'm going to give you up front one truth, one kind of big truth that undergirds the text, okay? So truth number one, if you're a note taker, write this down. Fasting is a biblical expression of longing for God. So, so the accusers are right, like fasting's a good thing. Neither John's disciples nor the Pharisees made up the idea or the concept of fasting. Throughout the whole Old Testament, we have testimony after testimony of God's people fasting for a period of time. Now, what do I mean when I say fasting? To fast is to abstain from food for a period of time for the sake of prayer. It's interesting that all around the world, even many different religions, everywhere you go, you will find the practice of fasting. I mean, throughout the Old Testament, you just find testimony after testimony of people fasting, and fasting and prayer always go together when you see them. And this is for a couple of reasons, and let's try to just fill in our understanding of why fasting is even a thing. And so sort of as a little sub-point under fasting is a biblical expression of longing for God, write this, fasting frees up time for focused prayer. So I just want you to consider with me for a second, uh, because this is a strange devotion. I get prayer, I get Bible reading, but why fasting? Consider how much time and energy you give each day to deciding what you will eat, preparing what you will eat, and then actually eating it, Okay. Some of you, maybe it's more time than others. Some people uh, eat to live. Some people live to eat, right? So the live to eat people, you've probably got a higher percentage of the amount of time you like putting into the preparation. Some of you will go into a discussion of what to eat immediately following the service. You, you will begin to think, where are we going to go? What's it going to cost? What's it going to take? Who are we going to invite? Like, if we invite all 20-something young singles, we'll be at El Paso for four hours while we're waiting on things. And so you're like, you're, you're gauging how much time you're going to give to eating. And even with our ability to order food from our phones, have it delivered directly to us, we spend a considerable amount of time every single day concerned with preparing what we're going to eat, actually eating it, and cleaning it up. But consider how much time and energy went into eating in a period of time where fast food was never an option, right? Where preparation was never with a microwave. Where raising Cain's chicken was not yet blessing the world with common grace. <laughs> Fasting pragmatically carved out significant portions of time that you could give yourself entirely to devotion intimacy and prayer with the Lord. Think about how spiritually fruitful it would be if you, one day next week, were to take your breakfast time and just your lunch time and spend it in concentrated prayer rather than the meal. And I would bet that many of you, your prayer lives would increase by a very large percent. Fasting, not only pragmatically does it carve out time for devotion to God, it intensifies our desire for God. Uh, the, the nature of fasting 
uh, reveals to us a few things. I mean, we are, by our very nature, as created people, we are in need for food and water to continue living. After only a morning without food, our body sends us natural signals that say, you are in need. You are in need. You are in need. And, and you respond to that in, in different ways. You go get food. You get angry or hangry, right? Your body tells you you need something after only a skipped meal. And this is a reminder of a deeper reality that we are, by our very nature, creatures who are in need. We, we cannot live physically without replenishing our food intake. We cannot live spiritually without God. We need him. We cannot complete the mission of God without him. The physical longing for food will not allow you to forget to pray because the physical yearning for food serves as a reminder of what you really should be learning, yearning for in the same way. That is God himself and his help to accomplish his mission. Fasting, therefore, was designed to sharpen and bring into focus the kind of longing, the kind of desire, the kind of dependence that we should have on God. And so throughout the Old Testament, we just see people of God giving themselves to fasting and prayer, especially when they are desperate for God's presence or desperate for his power in a particular situation. If you think of Second Chronicles chapter 20, where Jehoshaphat fasts and prays, asking God to rescue for, from the enemy that's coming. Look at Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 2 on the screen. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. Behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar. And then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. All the cities of Judah came to seek the Lord. Consider Nehemiah when faced with the task to rebuild the wall in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, and he hears that the whole city is broken down by fire, and what does he do? He, he gives himself to prayer and fasting. Or the king of the Ninevites and Jonah, when he hears that there is a God, and he is, he is a God of wrath and judgment on sin, and they, he recognizes that his whole nation is in trouble unless this God forgives them. And so the king of Nineveh, a pagan nation, cries out and calls out across the whole land to fast and pray for repentance, turn from your evil, that God might relent from disaster. In the New Testament, Jesus himself fasts and prays in preparation for the ministry that that the Father had called him to. In Matthew 6, Jesus talks about fasting as something that God the Father rewards. Matthew 6, 16, Jesus says, When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their face, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. And then in verse 18, he says, Your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is something that, that Christians should do, and they will find reward, they will find joy, they will find, they find blessing in the drawing near to the God of the universe. Fasting is a biblical expression of longing for God. Now you have to assume that as you come into the text to try to make sense of it. And so naturally they're coming and they're asking Jesus, why aren't you and your disciples doing this? We're doing it. Now, now John the Baptist and his followers were no doubt doing it for the, the right reasons. They're longing for the kingdom of God, longing for the promises of God. They're wanting to draw near. The Pharisees, on the other hand, um, we learn from the scriptures, are not necessarily doing it for the right reasons. 
They're doing it to be, their hunger is to be seen by men how holy they are. So they're, they're fasting and praying because they're yearning to be praised rather than yearning for the praise of the Lord. According to one resource that I was looking at, Pharisees fasted twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, from dawn to dusk. And it was supposed to be a sign to everyone else to their spiritual devotion. And so that's the culture. People doing it twice a week, like breakfast and lunch every week. But Jesus, you ain't doing it. And neither of your followers why? So Jesus answers their question to why with a question, as Jesus does often. He, he answers their question with a question. So look at me at verse 19. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Wedding celebrations in a Jewish village would have often lasted for a whole week, seven days. If you've ever planned a wedding, you think, Lord, help. <laughs> seven days of feasting and festivities and joy and singing and dancing. I mean, it is an entire week vacation type of deal. I mean, everyone parties for a week because of the union of a man and a woman. It was a joyous occasion, and to fast on such occasion would be nuts. It would be absurd to miss out on the joy of the celebration because you're like, no, nah, I'm, I'm not going to eat. Of course you don't fast during a wedding feast. You're supposed to rejoice and fellowship and sing and dance and eat. We get that, Jesus. How is that question an answer to the inquiry about you not fasting? That doesn't make any sense. We get that principle. What is Jesus' point? And I think Jesus' point is just absolutely profound. I mean, he's saying some deep things about himself and about what Christian life is supposed to be with this claim. Here's Jesus' point. Jesus' disciples do not fast because right now they're fellowshipping with Jesus. In other words, the groom is with his bride. Thus, we feast rather than fast. Truth number two is this. Fellowship with Jesus is the feast we fast for. Fellowship with Jesus is the feast we fast for. Jesus essentially says, I'm here, so there's nothing to long for. <laughs> I'm present, so if they want more of God, they just spend more time with me. Now's the time of feasting and rejoicing. Now, now just pause for a second. Consider how radical the statement is. First of all, Jesus is identifying himself with the bridegroom. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it use language of the bridegroom to refer to uh, the Messiah to come or a prophet or anything like this. The only time in the Old Testament you see language of the bride and the bridegroom, it is God describing himself and his relationship to his people. So we consider Isaiah chapter 54, verse 5, where God says, For your maker is your husband. 
The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth, he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. Hosea chapter 2, verse 19 God, listen to what God says about his people. This is what relationship with him is to be like. This is the type of relationship he desires with his people. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. God declared himself bridegroom over his people. And the type of relationship he desires with his people is like that of a marriage. It is marked by a covenantal commitment which will not be undone. It is a singular devotion to one another. It is an ongoing relationship with one another till death do us part. The only difference is in this case, death doesn't part us. With Anne-Marie and I were married, everything she had was mine, and everything that I had became hers. Except with our relationship with God, it's a better deal. (laughs) Everything that is his becomes ours, and everything that is ours becomes his. And here Jesus identifies himself as the bridegroom who's been united with his bride. So it's time to eat, baby. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, his followers will later comment saying as an instruction back to husbands and wives in this earth, like, like this is what your, your relationship is supposed to picture. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. But not on, so that's wild. Jesus is aligning himself with the bridegroom. But not only does he identify himself as the bridegroom, Jesus presumes that he himself is the very reason for fasting in the first place. I mean, Jesus presumes to be the very point of fasting. I'm here, so they don't got to fast right now. Fellowship with Jesus, therefore, is the point. The most ultimate fulfillment of our longing, our thirsty, and our hungry souls is found in Jesus. All our desires, all our hungers, all our thirst, all our yearnings, they find satisfaction in relationship with Jesus. That's why in the moment of fasting, as you feel the hunger pains well up inside you, it is to remind you and to tell you that you're made to desire. You're made to desire things. But you were made to desire things so that God might be the only one who can fulfill those desires. I mean, you were made to desire love, to desire affirmation, to desire um, the word of encouragement and affirmation that your father never gave you. You were made to desire things. The problem is, is that our sin nature tries to fulfill those desires in the wrong places. Fasting, as we feel the very real desires of our body, we're reminded that there's a deeper soul longing that is only found satisfaction in Jesus Christ himself. And that's why Jesus says crazy stuff in his ministry. 
That's why Jesus says things like in John chapter 6, 35, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is why Jesus stood up on a day of feasting in John chapter 7, 37, and he cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is the feast we fast for. The question is where do we look for fulfillment for all of our desiring? Jesus points to himself. In fact, Jesus goes a step further, verse 20. Look at verse 20 with me. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now, verse 20 is supposed to be a kind of jarring change to the analogy. Normally, in the feasting of a wedding ceremony or celebration, the bridegroom doesn't just get violently taken away from the situation. Normally, it ends with like a, you know, the, the riding off into the sunset, the, 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 the groom and his bride living happy ever after and everyone doing sparklers and waving and throwing like stuff in their face, right? Like that's how it's supposed to, to transition. But, but the, the analogy here transitions when the bridegroom is taken away, the, the very language itself is like a violent sort of like in Isaiah 53 where he is cut off from the land. It's like a, like a removal. It's, it's not supposed to be like a, a, like a, oh, goodbye, see you later. This is like a, a jarring moment. The, bri- the bridegroom is going to be taken away. You see, in this love story, the bridegroom is going to be taken away to return at a later date. And when that happens, first it will be arrest and crucifixion on behalf of his bride. But then it will be ascension to the Father to return at a later date for the consummation of the union. See, this is where we're at now in the story. We are waiting for the consummation of the union. We are waiting for the final days, longing for the day where our groom will return for his bride and we meet him face to face. We fellowship with him now in the spirit, but we long for the day we fellowship with him face to face like a bride longing for her groom. This is exactly how the book of Revelation depicts what it is that we've been promised. In Revelation chapter 19 that we read earlier in the the service paints this picture of, of people from every nation singing praise, singing salvation belongs to our Lord, and there's this moment of just worshiping God and all of his splendor. But in Revelation chapter 19, verse 9, listen to what it describes this moment as. It says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. Revelation chapter 21, which we should be familiar with, this last moment in the story of the world is pictured as a walking down the aisle. (laughs) 
It's, it's pictured as a, as a reuniting of two lovers who have been separate but now come together forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 21, verse, verse 1. Listen to this. This is the marriage ceremony. This is the walking down the aisle. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. What God has put together, let no one separate. This is the promise of the gospel, and this is our final truth, truth number three. Fellowship with Jesus is the future we fast for. There is certainly an immediate desire and fasting that we want to draw closer to him but there's also an element of fasting where as we fast now we look forward to future feasting we long for god to help us to focus on eternity rather than the temporal verse 21 and 22 seems like a very strange conclusion to an otherwise very beautiful word picture that Christ has just presented us. Jesus sees himself and his ministry as the true purpose for fasting, but he recognizes that his listeners, the Jewish opposers, did not see him and his ministry similarly. What they needed was a radical change of heart, a radical transformation of thinking. What they needed... Uh, was, was to be born again. <laughs> I mean, these, these, these were people who were fasting as a matter of pride, fasting for self and self-righteousness. These were people who thought that the Messiah was going to be a triumphant warrior just to crush Roman rule, not a suffering servant to overcome sin and death by dying on a Roman cross. Jesus transitions now to the people who oppose him, and he tells another parable in regard to the difficulty of merging the person and ministry of Jesus with the traditional form of Judaism and Pharisees that they had manufactured. So look at verses 21 and through 22, and, I, and there's actually one more truth, sorry about that. Verse 21, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, the wine is destroyed, so are the skins, but the new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, I try to get the point of this analogy. Like, like a new piece on an old garment, or like new wine in an old wineskin, Jesus cannot simply be added to existing frameworks of thought or man-made tradition. He will only be received into the person who's made new. Truth number four, Jesus changes everything. One commentator writes this, the new patch and new wine are incompatible with the old cloth and wineskins, and if the attempt is made to combine them, the new substance will destroy the old. 
The question posed is not whether disciples will, like sewing a new patch in an old garment or filling an old container, make room for Jesus in their already full agendas and lives. The question is whether they will forsake business as usual and join the wedding celebration, whether they will become entirely new receptacles for expanding fermentation of Jesus and the gospel in their lives. The way we have talked about Jesus in this sermon, and more specifically the way Jesus talks about himself, will not allow Jesus to be made a nice accessory to your already figured out life, or your already figured out belief system. He changes everything, even the way you eat or not eat. He changes the very fabric of life. He changes what fasting means. He is new. He cannot just be attached to all your oldness. (laughs) If Jesus is who he says he is, then we must allow him and his authoritative word to check our beliefs, our desires, and our lives. He is our salvation. He's the groom who gave his life for his bride. He alone is the one who brings purpose and meaning into our lives. He governs it all. He interprets it all. He's the lens through which we make every decision. Where to live, where to work, what money to make, who to have over for dinner. Jesus is now the lens which changes literally everything. He cannot, just like a new cloth, be sold on to the old cloth of your life and way of thinking. He must make the whole thing new. He changes everything or he changes nothing. Fasting is a biblical expression of longing for God. It is fellowship with Jesus. That's the feast we fast for. Fellowship with Jesus is the future we fast for, and Jesus changes everything. So let me leave you with just a few takeaways this morning of how to respond. Number one, um, consider your strongest desires. I just want you to take a moment and consider What sort of longings dominate your thinking? What kinds of desires affect your decision making? What do you dwell on most? Now I want to encourage you, takeaway number two, schedule a fast. doesn't have to be a long one. Pick a day over the next week or two. Do a one day dawn to us, dusk. Just, just skip breakfast and lunch for a time of prayer where you can take some time to align your strongest desires with where they need to be. Spend some time in prayer and Bible reading and song and just fellowship with God in an un interrupted way. If you have health concerns that won't allow you to do that, consider types of things that prevent you from fellowship with the Lord and and cast them out of your life to spend concentrated time with the Lord. We, this is a hard takeaway, right? Like, like you're actually giving me something I got to put on a calendar? Like, yeah, I'm saying right now, put it on the calendar. You're not here just to hear me talk. You're not here just to be entertained by some crazy 30-year-old like spitting stuff about the Bible. You're here to hear God's word and apply it to your life, right? So, so right now, what's your schedule next week? 
What, what day can you spend with the Lord in, in fasting? Put, put it on the schedule. And even as I, as I say that, there's a cringe in us because, because fasting is one of the most uncomfortable spiritual disciplines that there are. Like this actually costs you something. This, this fasting is a way of renouncing the idol of your own comfort. And it's a big one. So put it on the schedule. And wage some warfare against that thing this week. And lastly, um, takeaway number three, feast for the glory of God. Now, fasting is something we do as an occasional expression of our longing for God. There's no command in the scriptures of how often to do it, how long to do it. Like, like the, the only day, even in the Old Testament, where they were said, hey, fast is the day of atonement. One day a year where they would take the whole day and do it. So, so there's freedom in Christ here to, to worship him through this way. Fasting is something we do, an occasional expression of our longing for God. But this does not mean that fasting is, is our way of life every day. Christianity is not some form of weird asceticism where we deny ourselves of any joyful things we are not creepy monks like like in gowns with head shaved like never wanting to experience joy that is not the case there are times in christianity for feasting as well jesus recognizes them like go to a wedding and and eat some cake right <laughs> Like, like, like feast and enjoy and rejoice. The Jews had these scheduled feasts too. They, they feasted. The Passover was a feast. Christians celebrated the Lord's Supper as a full meal designed to be eaten as a joyful feast between believers in remembrance of Christ. As Christians, we still feast. We enjoy a good meal. We enjoy good fellowship. But we do so differently than the rest of the world. We do so for the glory of Christ. Do you realize we, we get to experience joy in a way that people who don't know God don't get to experience it? We enjoy a feast knowing that every taste that hits my taste bud was God's idea. Good tasting food was God's idea for our enjoyment. I mean, in Genesis, like, like, like eat from every tree of the garden. Enjoy the world I've created you, but it's all for the glory of the one who created it. We enjoy fellowship of community, knowing that laughter and friendship and love are all God's ideas. We feast, knowing that any enjoyment and experience in this life is a glimmer of the feasting and fellowshipping we'll do forever. As Christians, we fast for the glory of Christ, and we feast for the glory of Christ, because Jesus changes literally everything. So let's pray. <clears throat> Help us now, Father, to respond um, to your word, to this concept of fasting, we pray that you would draw us nearer into the feast of fellowship with you in this life and help us to long for the fullness of it in the next life, God. Help us to worship as a community of faith now, and we pray this in Jesus' name.